Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Occasionalists. Matt Pagel here once again, flying the ship solo as we continue on with our June history lesson. Uh, this one, our second part on sneakers. Or this is uh, this is uh, this has been a really fun up, a really fun series of episodes to put together. Sorry, I'm a little bit late getting this one together, but uh, like I said, you know, duty calls before uh, before this. But uh, finally, getting this one out to conclude our include our two-part series on the history of the sneaker, our history lesson on sneakers. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So obviously in the first episode, we covered quite a bit more extensive ground with, um, you know, the history of footwear with, you know, humanity, um, obviously stretching back quite a long time, you know, probably 50,000 years. Uh, we are going to focus in more uh, concisely on a smaller time period. We're going, to, we're going to narrow the scope down and we're going to look at uh, four different eras that sort of four different time periods from uh, you know up to now that define what um, modern sneakers are, what modern sneaker culture is, and well, I guess the beginning of sneaker culture and what it is now, and sort of the advancements and evolution of, of shoes during this time period, during these time periods. So we're going to start with the just the pre nineteen seventies. Um, you could kind of you could kind of track this from the nineteen forties up through up to the late sixties is kind of this time period. Uh, before things are uh, a little bit more professional and organized in in the shoe world, uh, let's, let's put it that way. Uh, you'll see what we're getting. You'll see what we're getting into there. Uh, then, obviously, we'll cover the 1970s. Uh, the 1970s really um, is where we have our first um, first earmarks of of a lot of, of of early developments in shoe culture, in um, sort of the the business that would become shoes. Um, all of this sort of starts in the, I wouldn't say it starts in the 1970s, but I think these are the biggest sort of, um, these are the first sort of biggest, I don't know, well, maybe the most important steps is the best way to put it, happened in the 1970s. Uh, then we're going to advance, obviously, into the 1980s, and of course we're going to talk about how this definitely becomes more of a, um, how sneaker sneakers and sneaker culture become a, a complete business, uh, thanks to Nike, thanks to... Um, Thanks to hip hop um, adopting sneakers as sort of its hallmark um, piece of street style, um, and then there's obviously individuals uh, involved in the 1980s who uh, push to create and push modern sneaker culture uh, into into both the uh, the sports and fashion world. And then we're gonna go from and we're gonna this is gonna be the biggest chunk of time here. We're just calling it the 1990s through now, where we have some very interesting innovations in sneaker technology. Um, some interesting, uh, some big bold um, design design decisions. Um, some the influence of other sports. Uh, you know, for a long time it was just basketball that kind of dominated. Uh, you know the way you know how sneakers were made and like sort of the the sneaker culture was really basketball dominated. And in the 1990s we have a, you know a few more a few more sports entering the fray there. And then obviously we have um, probably one. Of, this is probably as it's best defined. We now have like celebrities uh, involved in the endorsement and sponsorship of sneakers as well. Um, so we're gonna that's that's how we're gonna we're gonna chop this particular episode up, um, and then uh, I'll wrap up with the top five my my top five sneakers of all time. Uh, some of these I have some of these I have or currently own or uh, just ones that I've always enjoyed, uh, and so that's how we'll we'll get through this episode. So let's get into it. All right, let's get into it. The pre-1970s history of sneakers. Uh, generally, this is going to be really more thinking with the 1950s and the 1960s, but 
Um, there's some 1940s stuff in here as well, but just generally think about this from the 50s onward, 50s through 1950 through 1969, basically. Uh, and to start off here, I'll give you some of the uh, the top shoes uh, of this time period, and you'll you'll see a pattern here as, uh, um, or you'll maybe not a pattern, but you'll see some interesting stuff emerge as we go through each segment, and I'll, I'll give you like the top shoes of this of this era. So, top shoes from this pre 1970s era, of course, we still got Chuck Taylors. Uh, we have the Adidas Gazelle, which is a, um, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more, but this is one of Adidas, Adidas' first big successes, um, is the Gazelle. And then we also have the Puma Suede, um, also one of Puma's first big successes uh, from, you know, peri- you know, altogether period, but certainly um, this kind of puts Puma on the map in this point in time. Uh, so, anyway... Just to kind of circle back to where we where we left off, which was talking about Converse. Converse is still dominating basketball at this point, both college and uh, and pro basketball. Um, more than likely, if you see a picture of a basketball player from the fifties or sixties, um, you will definitely see them wearing Converse. Um, there's, you know, go ahead and take like think like Will Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, there's a very good chance, especially in college but in the pros as well, that they are wearing Converse basketball shoes. Uh, Adidas is making some inroads uh, at this point in time. And, and in fact, by the time we get to the late 60s, you'll see a few uh, a few more basketball players uh, wearing, wearing Adidas shoes. Um, and even at the collegiate level, there's a few more players uh, wearing Adidas shoes. But Converse is still the, the dominant basketball brand at this point in time. Now, however, Adidas is making making a splash in the late 60s with their gazelle shoe. It's an athletic It's definitely a success with the athletes and in, in various sports, uh, especially running and some it, running, especially, but uh, some other sports as well. However, the Adidas gazelle is a monster hit in the fashion world, a monster hit. These were, these of the time were the coolest casual sneaker of this period of this time period, late sixties, you know, even into the early seventies, a kind of, um, Kind of blurred the line between. I guess you could. I guess you'd call it like it's for the first athleisure wear, right? Um, this was this was a huge, huge success for Adidas. Um, so much so that you can kind of see, like, if you're if you go look up the um, some of the advertisements and things for the Gazelle around this point in time, it, they're definitely not as they're definitely not being marketed as as athletic shoes. They are definitely more of a lifestyle brand. So the Gazelle is really one of the one of the first sort of landmark shoes that crosses over into into the fashion world into casual wear um there's there is like a fair amount of diversity in terms of who was wearing what and in the sports world in um in the fashion world in terms of sneakers but really you are looking at converse adidas even keds were still um you know we're still in demand in both the athletic spheres and the and the fashion sphere um, but this is, I think this is when you could really make the argument that, that sneakers become more than athletic footwear. I mean, I, I think, I think that sneakers have always been a hallmark of street style, um, to be sure, uh, dating back to, I mean, literally dating back to probably like the 19 teens, um, sneakers are, are a hallmark of, of street style versus, um, Versus more um, upper class style, if you will. Um, I'm probably oversimplifying that, but I think you know. What you think I think you know what I mean. Um, but I think we're like I said, the gazelle is this big crossover success where people of all um, 
people of, of, of all means, um, be they upper class, be they lower class, if you will, were um, were wearing the sneaker around. And it was, like I said, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fashion success. And, you know, it not just, it wasn't anymore just something that was worn by, again, wasn't it was more than just street style. This was something that was being worn, um, you know, like you, you would pick up, uh, you know, a fashion magazine at the time and it would tell you how to, you know, what, you know, what else you could pair, um, you know, what, what kind of outfit pairs best with the Adidas Gazelle. So you really have like the first sort of steps towards, the first sort of steps towards sneakers being more than, more than street style and certainly more than athletic shoes. We're now moving into casual wear, athleisure wear, and it all starts in the really, you know, again, this has always been a thing with, with tennis shoes but or with sneakers, uh, but really when you look at like the late 1960s is when we're making the first big moves towards towards um, our modern sneaker culture and sneakers sneakers as a fashion items versus uh, a tool for or or a piece of uh, piece of sporting equipment. All right, now let's get into it. This is the we're getting into the decade in the 1970s when uh, really and truly um, the the sneaker in terms of its innovation design and its function in both athletics and uh, as you know sort of casual wear or fat you know as a fashion statement really this is where things really crystallize um, and certainly the way shoes and sneakers as a business really crystallizes in the 1970s um, but before we get into all of that specifically uh, let's take a look at uh, again some of the top shoes from the 1970s uh, so we have the uh, Adidas Superstar uh, the Nike Cortez uh, definitely one of Nike's first, um, <clears throat> Nike's one of, you know, one of the early Nike, you'll, you'll recognize it, one of the waffle design shoes. Um, but certainly like their first sort of big hit in, in terms of both athletic wear and casual wear, the Nike Cortez. Uh, we have the Puma Clyde suede. Uh, this is, this is one of Puma's, uh, earliest, earliest sponsored shoes. Uh, this was, uh, Walt Clyde Frazier's, uh, signature shoe um he's a great basketball player with the knicks back in the uh, back in the 60s and the 70s um so the we have the puma clyde suede um this is and now we have uh, some other companies kind of jumping in into the uh i should say uh, companies outside of the your general at this point basketball and running um so we have vans jumping into um into the sneaker arena in terms of popularity obviously obviously they've been around for a little bit at this point in time but uh, the Vans era is a huge is a huge deal is a huge deal at this point in time. Um, obviously, coming from the world of skateboarding, and uh, you know, I, I guess I guess we wouldn't define them as extreme sports yet, but uh, uh, that's obviously the background that uh, Vans is coming from. And then, still hanging around at this point in time, Chuck Taylors are still amongst the most popular brand of sneakers at this point in time in the 1970s. So. Again, we have the Adidas Superstar, the Nike Cortez, the Puma Clyde Suede, the Vans Era, and of course the the standard, the Chuck Taylors, uh, still making make a lot of waves here in the 1970s. So, like I said, this is uh, this is the era of um, this is the era of crystallizing sneakers in so many so many ways in pop culture and in business, especially. So let's let's start there. This is definitely the the era of the athlete endorsement. Um, there had previously, you know, like I said, athletes had always been um, directly involved with sneakers in many many ways. But really, this is where where we're going to get to how we think of how we think of um, athletes and shoe deals. This is where it all begins, 
And I'll, I'll throw out a little bit of trivia here for you, and I'll give you a, a second to answer and think about it. Um, so Nike really pioneers this um, in terms of in terms of really going harder after the athletes versus um, you know versus other shoe companies just sort of making not since it just sort of but because other shoe companies definitely had um, you know went after signature athletes but it was more about like you know if you worked at if you were a Converse rep or an Adidas rep you were probably trying to get like a whole uh, university to wear your shoes or you wanted the you wanted the Lakers or the Celtics to wear your Converse as opposed to really making as opposed to really um, striking the shoe striking uh, comp- marrying the shoe with the athlete really is where is where Nike kind of um, innovates um, innovates with um, athlete endorsements so I'm just gonna go with Nike here and if you can again I'm gonna give you a few seconds to think about this because who you're thinking about is probably incorrect um, unless you are an absolute nerd for this kind of shit like I am but so Nike pioneers the Nike pioneers this sort of um, you know tailoring the shoe to the athlete and, and making the athlete and the shoe kind of one and the same. So who was Nike's first cele- your first athlete endorser or first athlete first sponsored athlete basically? I think that's the best way to put it. I keep tripping on my words here. So who was Nike's first sponsored athlete? Go ahead and think about that for a few seconds. I bet it, I bet you're wrong. I will bet you're wrong. All right. Okay, a few more seconds. Okay, that's enough time. If you said Steve Prefontaine, you are 100% incorrect. Nike's first sponsored athlete was none other than Wayne Wells. Who the hell is Wayne Wells, you're probably asking yourself. Wayne Wells was a standout. Oh, here, bonus question. What was Wayne Wells a standout in? Probably track would make sense, right? Well, if you said track, you were also 100% incorrect. Wayne Wells was a standout wrestler at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, originally a Texas guy, uh, went to Oklahoma to go wrestle. Uh, but uh, Wayne Wells is a was a very accomplished wrestler. He was won the gold medal in the Olympics in 1972. Um, he also won a slew of... Um, I don't have his full bio up here right now, but also won uh, uh, at least two, I believe, NCAA championships at his um, at his weight class. Um, <clears throat> and then he went, you know, he's he was much more important since, uh, you know, obviously there's no prof- well, there's a professional wrestling, you know, entertainment, professional wrestling leagues, quote unquote, but not in that kind of wrestling. He's much more instrumental later as. Um, you know, running camps and, um, you know, working more on, on the business side of uh, helping out Nike on the business side. But he was he was definitely an athlete when he's still an active athlete um, when he was signed, a, you know, a gold medal athlete at that when he was signed uh, by Nike. He's also um, he's also in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, which is in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And uh, if you you can go ahead and um, if you look up if you look up Wayne Wells' Nike um, ad, you can see his uh, original wrestling shoes with the white wrestling white wrestling shoes with the with the red uh, Nike swoosh on it, um, and it's just it's just very fascinating that this is our very fascinating that this is our first um, you know first endorsed uh, you know athlete endorsement signed athlete whatever you want to say it, um, and it's you know it, again not who you're thinking of not in the sport you're thinking of. But just very, very interesting that this is sort of the, um, 
that this is the the, the man that that uh, the athlete that broke um, that that broke in that broke in and, and you know kind of paved the way for all the other athletes to come. So Wayne Wells is actually our first Nike athlete. Um, so yeah, just very surprising bit of trivia right there. Um, that that's that's the kind of trivia that can definitely win you a beer or two uh, out of the pub. So. Let's move on here then to Nike's second endorsed athlete. And uh, I'll give you less than a second to think about this one because whoever you were thinking, whoever you're thinking about the first time, this is probably the correct answer here. Yes, Steve Prefontaine is, um, is Nike's second, uh, uh, second athlete that they sponsor. Um, his sponsorship is a little bit different, obviously, um, since he was an amateur when his sponsorship first starts. Uh, obviously, he's uh, he's at the University of Oregon at this point in time, um, but his what's really important. Well, one what's really important is that he was um, you know the the face of the face of Nike, the face of Nike and its running shoes, and we'll get into this here in a little bit. But running absolutely explodes in popularity at this point in time, in part because of Steve Prefontaine and how out front he was. Um, you know, with uh, how out front he was uh, as an athlete for Nike. Um, but besides, you know, besides just sort of the being synonymous with running shoes at this point in time, and really kind of still being synonymous with running shoes, Pre was also a, um, also really set the standard, um, or I should say probably set a new standard for athlete endorsements and athlete rights as far as uh, being able to um, you know, to strike deals on their own and make money. Obviously, again, he was still in college when he um, when he becomes a Nike athlete, and it really his the you know getting getting a piece of at, the, at that point in time getting a piece of uh, you know Nike's revenue and sales, uh, making sure that uh, his making sure that it was more of a long term investment than as opposed to just you know taking some money. Like the the way Wayne Wells um was a, a sponsored athlete was very very different from how Steve Refontaine was a sponsored athlete. And the those sort of contracts um those sort of contracts really kind of like Prefontaine again sets the the sort of the blueprint for how the the big time athletes get signed to shoe companies now. I mean there's a reason why um, there is a reason why Jordan. There is a Jordan brand underneath the Nike umbrella, right? And you know, it's because essentially, essentially Jordan would, if if it was just pure purely about taking, um, you know, taking stock or um, getting a piece of the the company, uh, Jordan would would pretty much own just about as much Nike as Phil Knight does. Um, but it, it was, it, you know, again, Michael Jordan being that Nike athlete that did sort of business was. Uh, the business deal, the, the long term business goals, uh, the long term business uh, deals were important too. And Steve Prefontaine was the the first athlete to really sort of set that standard, thinking long term as opposed to just like a you know a one time payout or like a you know a couple year contract or whatever. Um, and very similar um, to very similar to Chuck Taylor, Pre was involved in the development of shoes. Um, he was involved in the sales of shoes. He was. Involved in sort of, um, you know, pro, you know, I guess uh, you could call it um, product feedback. You know, he he would uh, distribute shoes to other runners, and you know, just get their what they thought, like what they what they felt when they were running in them. Um, you know, that sort of like making that again, like as a sales t- technique as well, just kind of making that inroad. That like, hey, you know, you're if you if you want, like Nike is looking for more athletes, right? 
Um, Pre was definitely much more involved, certainly much more involved than uh, Jordan was probably um, uh, a decade later, uh, over a little over a decade later um, in terms of his shoe deal. But Pre was definitely involved in uh, top to bottom, really. I mean, other than like actually making the shoes, he was really uh, heavily involved in making sure that um, that he was uh, his fingerprints were all over the um, all over the uh, the shoes, literally, figuratively and literally, I guess. Um, so yeah, kind of uh, just a. A very a very Chuck Taylor esque kind of figure in terms of uh, in terms of sneakers at this point in time, and what really helps what really helps Prefontaine I think um, sort of establish himself um, as you know again a person that is unfortunately died very very young, um, but someone that you know even forty some years later after his death um, or nearly forty years after his death we still kind of associate him with. Or excuse me, fifty years after his death, almost. Um, we still kind of associate him very closely with with tennis shoes, not just because running shoes and tennis, whatever you know what I mean, sneakers. Not just because of you know because he was a good salesman or you know because he was a very very notable athlete with some amazing accomplishments. So at one point in time, at one point in time, he held the American records in the two thousand meters, the three thousand meters, the five thousand meters, the ten thousand meters. Um, I believe, let me, let me double check on this, he also held the American records in the two miles, the three miles, and the six miles. Um, he won, I believe, double check this again, yeah, Prefontaine won three consecutive outdoor track and field championships in the 5,000 meters from 1970 to 72. He also won four consecutive NCAA cross-country championships from 69 to 72. Like, this is... It's really, especially since, you know, it was so long ago that he was doing all this. Um, and also, even though running was very, very popular popular at the time, it's still not the same as, still not quite the same as being like the, you know, the best football player, you know, being a record-breaking football player or something like that. Um, so I think, I think just the distance, the, the distance from his, um, you know, when he was absolutely destroying American records uh, to now kind of does does kind of create a little bit of separation. Well, you know, a lot of younger people might not know exactly like what who Prefontaine was, but really for for lack of a better comparison, um, and just to bring in another Nike athlete, he was the Michael Jordan of running um, at this point in time. And, and um, it, it, it was just a no-brainer that you would have taken this, that you would have wanted this athlete um, to to take your running shoes, um, you know, to, to, to be the, the face of your running shoe. You would want the Michael Jordan of running to be that person, and that's who Steve Prefontaine was. Um, so yeah, so Pre had the, the you know, he had two he had one shoe signature shoe designed after him. That's the Nike Pre Montreal, um, and then obviously he made synonymous he made running synonymous with the Nike Waffle shoes, um, which are very very famous. I think there I think there's an original pair of those Nike Waffle shoes that were his that were like sold. Uh, in the last like few years for like $180,000 or something insane. Um, so Steve Prefontaine is definitely um, sort of the first, he, he is sort of the, the it's, I, 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 you know, I'll, I'll try not to continuously reference him until we get to him, but in many ways, he's the Michael Jordan. He's the original Michael Jordan in terms of his sport and also in terms of um, setting a new standard in terms of uh, business deals with, uh, with athletic companies. Um, and then let's go here to our, our last sort of little bit of trivia here. And this is our, our first 
professional competing athlete that becomes a Nike athlete. Um, again, this is probably someone you've never heard of before. Um, it's, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing this correctly, Ilya Nastase, uh, a Ro- Romanian, or Ilya Nastase, that's how you pronounce it, Romanian tennis player. He is the first professional athlete, meaning obviously he's not an amateur athlete uh, in the case of Steve Prefontaine, who was in college at that point in time. Um, and then obviously Wayne Wells was more or less done with um, just about done with wrestling. At, at you know he went to you know went to the Olympics and I believe he was done uh, collegiate wrestling by about that point in time as well. But Ilyana Stays is active in his sport. He's a pretty good tennis player. Um, I want to say he's he won a couple of Grand Slams. I think he's more a little bit more notable. Um, his a little bit more success as like a doubles player. But this would have, you know, this would have been a big time get, like as your first professional, um, per, first professional athlete. But unlike later athletes that they sign, um, it, the, this shoe, and unlike Steve Prefontaine before him, and actually for that matter, Wayne Wells before him, um, Ilya Estes doesn't have like as like they're not designing the shoe around him and with his feedback and sort of uh, you know making it for him. It's these are just called the Nike Wimbledons. Um, so they were more of a blanket tennis shoe, literally tennis shoe, um, that it's, again, I'm sure they, I'm sure they took feedback and some sort of, you know, you know, like what, you know, what do you think Ilya is as the, as the professional athlete who would be wearing this? I'm sure they took him into consideration, but it wasn't like it, there wasn't, um, nothing was designed around him. It wasn't like this particular part was like his input. You know what I mean? Like it, it. Definitely not the way that we're thinking of um, of later professional shoe endorsement deals. Even later shoe endorsement deals with tennis players. It's actually that's where they made uh, Nike made a lot of early hay um, was with uh, a lot of tennis players. Um, and and honestly, it's it's pretty interesting. Like Ilya Stays kind of fits a mold that a lot of their early athletes would kind of fit um, in terms of like the people that they were signing. Uh, by the time we get to the 1980s, he's a he's kind of a especially for the time uh, a little bit bold, a little bit brash, kind of flamboyant. Um, definitely fits the mold of a lot of Nike athletes um, in the 80s and 90s, especially. Um, and it's not surprising that a few years, um, I want to say it's a few years before they signed Jordan, and it's several years after they signed Illinois Days, that um, Nike lands John McEnroe. So it's not like really that surprising that they, you know, they kind of as a, as sort of a I don't know what you call it, brand harmonics, brand and sponsor harmonics or endorser harmonics that they find very particular sort of very particular athletes that have a particular sort of a you know attitude that kind of goes against the establishment, it goes against the grain, um, and you know that's that's something that Nike, especially at that point in time, would have been a little bit more. Uh, synonymous with, um, you know, kind of going against the establishment was something that Nike was definitely trying to cast themselves as, and hence a lot of the uh, a lot of the athletes that they signed early on kind of fit that mold as well. This is also the era of some very early exclu- exclusivity deals, and by exclusivity deals, I mean <clears throat> we think about it now. Uh, you think about it like mostly in college, but obviously pro teams have this as well. Um, well, every team has this as well. I, I just think I, I just think this pops out a little bit more um, when you think about this. It pops out a little bit more like a, a, at the collegiate level, and that's really where it starts too. 
Um, but we have these early exclusivity deals. Um, and what I mean by that is like Nike and Oregon, right? Like Oregon has been a Nike school since before Nike was called Nike. Um, it was originally called Blue Ribbon Sports. And they, Oregon had an exclusivity deal, um, you know, especially obviously the, the track and field clubs and, you know, those kind of teams. But it obviously extended beyond that as time went on. But they have an early exclusivity deal with Nike. And you even get this a little bit with, um, there's some other schools as well. Thinking about like when you get to the later 70s, uh, Sonny Vaccaro, uh, Nike executive. Um, if you if you have seen the movie Air recently, I'm pretty sure it's Matt Damon's character. Um, he, he One of his big things was to go to some of these bigger college coaches and uh, give them, you know, give them a, a basket full of shoes basically for the team. Um and I'm going to assume uh, crossing some various, uh, not saying that this is right or wrong. In fact, excuse me. In fact, I'm more on the side of just breaking down the the stupid veneers of of I, I don't know what's what's proper and improper uh, according to the NCAA. But at the time, I'm going to go ahead and guess that Sonny Vaccaro and Nike violated some various rules, uh, especially as it concerns with one of the first coaches that they gave stuff to was uh, Jerry Tarkanian. Uh, head coach at the head basketball coach at uh, UNLV, maybe one of the most, maybe one of the most corrupt um, NCAA coaches of all time, um, maybe the most corrupt of all time. Hell of a basketball coach, hell of a basketball coach. But you know, it a lot easier to get people to come out to UNLV when you're just paying them, um, and you're not even being shy about paying them. Uh, again, I don't, I don't give a shit. In fact, I it it feels like it's just. Jerry Tarkanian was just, you know, 50 years ahead of his time, that's all. Um, but uh, more than likely, there's some other improprieties and things happening uh, with with Nike and, for that matter, every other shoe company that was trying to to get a college team, right? Um, you know, I want to I say Adidas and Converse were, you know, were at, like, Kentucky and Duke at, this point in t- at that point in time. Uh, and I'm sure they did things uh, that were considered, that would be considered inappropriate, should they have come to light? Uh, but but you do have these early exclusivity deals that kind of pave the way for, um, you know, pave the way for these mega deals for like Ohio State, you know, to become a, a Nike school, um, you know, a, to, be, to, to literally go in the field with new sponsored cleats every every big game. Um, like those things start in the 1970s. And it's, you know, it it. Not surprisingly, it really takes off very, very quickly once these schools figure out that there's that there is free free money in this sort of in these sort of deals, basically. Uh, just not surprising. And if you really want to look into it, it's hard to say exactly who was like the first. I mean, Nike and Oregon kind of synonymous. Um, so, I, but again, it wasn't like every single team was exclusively Nike at that point in time. In fact, early on, it's not like they had basketball shoes; they just they were running shoes. Um, so I, I suppose you could look at Nike and Oregon as the first, um, NCAA exclusivity deal, but I, I don't think that would truly be accurate. Um, there's some other, I, I've seen some others that kind of pinpoint, uh, Michigan possibly as being one of the first schools to sign. I, I can't remember if they were Converse or Adidas. Um, but certainly in, I want to say it's in 1985 or 1986, um, University of Miami, uh, Florida, not uh, in Ohio, obviously, um, Miami, Florida is like the first school to sign like a complete exclusivity deal with Nike. Um, and that comes obviously much, you know, not much later, but about a decade uh, after uh, Nike really kind of lands on the scene as a 
as a major player in the shoe world. Now, the thing that underpins all of this in the 1970s is the running boom of the 1970s. Uh, Probably really starts more like the late 60s, but really explodes in the 1970s, in part because of people like Steve Prefontaine, but also because of uh, someone I didn't really mention here at this point yet at this point, um, Frank Shorter uh, was the became the first American to uh, win the Olympic marathon. Um, he's like the third ever to win the Olympic marathon, but the first since like 1908. So it had been uh, what 64 years uh, he won in the at the 1972 Munich Games, and um, you know this is one of those big thing. You know, it was covered widely on ABC. This is one of those big things that. Um, one of those big cultural moments that really helps kind of propel something that already had a decent amount of momentum really gain a significant amount of even more momentum. Think about like all the people that picked up cycling uh, during um, uh, during Lance Armstrong's uh, dominant domination of, as we now know, kind of a fraudulent domination. He's not that such he's not such a great person after all, but nonetheless, Lance Armstrong really you know. Um, inspired a lot of people to pick up cycling and, and cycling gained steam in the uh, you know in the mid to late nineties in, in the in the U S. Um, because of uh, because of Lance Armstrong, same deal here. Frank Shorter um, you know, winning this Olympic marathon and also it has like there's like a, I guess can't find video of this thing, um, but I, I guess there's like a there's a pretty famous moment where um, one of the commentators who was a marathon runner himself I, I can't remember the name I want to say Eric Siegel possibly. Um, is giving commentary, and this there's like this really famous moment where a German imposter jumped out onto the track because this is 1972, and uh, apparently security at the Olympics just didn't exist yet. Um, but a, an imposter jumped out onto the track ahead of Frank, Frank Shorter. Um, you know, you know, getting down to the down to the wire as he's about to cross this finish line. And the commentator very famously says, um, that's a fraud, Frank. Um, obviously, Frank Shorter couldn't hear it at that point in time. Um, you know, he's busy running a marathon. But it was one of those, just one of those moments in in pop culture uh, that really kind of solidified. It, it just made it very, very famous. Um, you know, the, we have this like famous, with this big event, this kind of like, you know, at this point in time, something that hadn't happened for the U.S. in a long time. And then we have like an even more... Um, and even more, um, the moment made even more famous because of the stage and because we have it on video. And you know, there's a there's a great um, you know there's a great call of like what's going on. It's just one of those like moments that's sealed in uh, in pop culture history, and really was one of the things that put running more on the you know again something that it already kind of started, but really put running as a sport on the map for a lot of people outside of outside of hobbyists. Um, so it, it, it just very interesting sort of point in time here, um, where this kind of event happens and and again, not solely because of this event, but just another thing that helped the game, helped the movement, excuse me, gain positive momentum. And because of this positive momentum and the explosion and the interest in running, we have an explosion of people buying running shoes and certainly, you know, I, I guess every Every person in economics will tell you economics 101, um, where there you know where there's more demand, we need supply to meet, meet the demand, and because of because of this significantly increased demand, and I, I and again I don't have the I, these are some things I really should begin to write down, but it was something like it was something like uh, in the 1970s over 30 million Americans 
um, participated in some aspect of what you would consider, like jogging, hobby running, hobby running, um, exercise running, you know, whatever, not just not running like for a, a sport particularly just on their own. It was something like about over 30 million Americans participated in, it in some way, shape or form. Um, so that massive, massive increase in demand obviously means it increases supply. So you have, so now we just, we don't have just like one or two Nike or Adidas running shoes. We have four or five, right? We have that we have we have specialized shoes or not shouldn't say specialized but we have shoes that may maybe appeal more to the someone who is a very hardcore runner who's going to put on a lot of miles uh, in the course of a week um obviously women's shoes women's athletic shoes had already branched off been around for a long point been around for a pretty good clip at this point but you have again more specialized women's running shoes um you know develop, being developed by Nike and Adidas and uh and Converse and everyone else. Um, you have more companies even jumping up into uh, into the fold, uh, creating their own sneakers, creating their own running shoes. Um, I, I think I think a really good analog for it today would be to think about how the the popularity of CrossFit really spurned on a, a, an apparel movement, um, but definitely like a, a, a very kind of niche uh, shoe war broke out in the CrossFit uh, exercise sphere, um, particularly particularly between Reebok and Nike. Um, and I think I think even at that point in time, Reebok was actually like an Adidas uh, company. Um, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure Reebok is, in fact, just their like athletic branch now. It's not, um, you know, they're not they're not making like leisure wear for you know, under the Reebok brand name. But anyway, um, you, you definitely get this CrossFit war between Reebok and Nike. Um, so you have, uh, you know, the Reebok Nanos, the Nike, um, the I believe they're called Metcons. You also have like more specialized weightlifting shoes from both, uh, powerlifting shoes from both. Just this sort of uh, CrossFit and the sort of the general weightlifting craze that really hit about like 10, 12 years ago um, creates this uh, creates this significant increase in um in the creation of these shoes uh between nike and, uh, and reebok so much so that there's actually room for more companies than to uh push their way in like noble or innovate um of which i have both i have both pairs of uh, both those companies actually own their sh- a pair of their shoes uh, the, i have like these innovate um shoes that are they're like basically barefoot shoes almost uh minimal heel they're almost like a almost like just like a fabric on a on um Fabric on like a, a very thin rubber sole that has some good traction. They're very much like going back to like some OG like 1930s um, sneakers, honestly. Um, but yeah, the, so that's 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 the that would be the analog I would kind of draw to it is the the running boom of the 1970s creates more you know forces the the main companies to create uh, you know create uh, different shoes for different needs, and it also lets more companies kind of fill in. Um, which really is how Nike sort of gets Nike really explodes because of um, of the interest in running, and and because they have one of the preeminent runners at this point in time under their banner, um, it just sort of makes sense that they that they're able to ride the popularity of running uh, to uh, to new heights at this point in time. So it, it is a very interesting. It's just a very interesting sort of. Um, very interesting time period uh, to be, if you were interested in sneakers uh, at this point in time, it's very interesting because you do have, you still have like these, uh, the, you know, you, you still think of the Blue Blood companies again, like 
as we mentioned before, like there are still Chuck Taylors uh, are still very popular, but we now have a, a different form of athletic shoe. Whereas there was so basketball dominated um, previously. And, and obviously, um, you know, obviously there are other types of shoes that weren't basketball shoes, but they still were the dominant sort of athletic shoe until this point in time. Um, so, you know, once running becomes a big deal, now we have, if you do want to wear more of the high top shoes, they, you know, multiple companies have versions of that, be they, be they Adidas, be they Chuck Taylors, Pumas, whatever, you do have a high top shoe, but then you, with the emergence of running shoes, we have more low cut, low top, um, shoes that, that definitely fit better in, with a more casual look. Um, I think, but it, it's just an interesting point in time to be a, to be a shoe person, um, or even to be an athlete as your, as your options for your sport really begin to, um, really begin to multiply, um, at this point in time. All right. So let's get into it. Let's get into the birth, the truly where, um, sneakerhead culture and, and sneakers, how we think of the modern sneaker is truly born in the 1980s. But again, we'll start off with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we'll start off with, um, the top shoes of this point in time. And, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's kind of interesting here, actually. So top shoes in the 1980s, we have, not surprisingly, the Nike Air Jordan 1, the Nike Air Max 1, uh, the Reebok Freestyle, the Converse Weapon. Uh, and this was this is the first time that Chuck Taylors actually fall off of the, um, you know, the most popular sneaker list uh, really since like the 1930s. Um, you know, about 50 years of, of those particular con- brand of Converse being uh, at, at the top. But the Converse Weapon was re- really, really popular. These would have been the shoes that... Uh, Magic Magic Johnson and Larry Bird uh, would have been wearing, uh, especially in the early '80s. Um, but but a very popular. If you if you go ahead and look up the the Converse weapon right now, you'll you'll know exactly which shoes that these are. Uh, very popular. Um, still and honestly, still I think one of the best looking uh, best looking sneakers ever made are the Converse weapons. Um, and then we have the Adidas Stan Smith, a one of one of the. One of the many, I think the thing that really, for me, sets Adidas apart from everyone else um, is sort of how how well that that three there are three stripes and that um, they're just the the design and how like three stripe they use the three stripe logo so well to make a really like good casual shoe. Um, and Stan Smith, Stan Smiths were uh, were were up there. They're they're still very popular and still sold today. Um, one of the one of their more popular brands of like sort of casual fashion sneakers, um, Adidas has always done a good job of that, making making it so that they're even their more um, you know their more specialized, be it a basketball shoe or whatever running shoe, um, they just have a, a good kind of casual sense of style about them as well. Um, something I don't think you can say for even believe me, I love Jordans. I don't think you can even necessarily say that about every model of of air jordans um they they certainly aren't all casual shoes uh, some of them more so than others but i think pretty much pretty much universally most adidas sneakers are really good casual shoes but like i said we're getting into it now it's the 1980s and this is so we have to start with michael jordan and nike obviously and one of the things that we we always say on this podcast like one of the things that i just will not participate in um, because I think it's hack BS, um, and it's just 
attack the BS. It's just a, it's a stupid it's a stupid stupid argument. Um, we whenever we talk sports in this podcast, especially when we talk basketball, I, I never want to get into the LeBron versus Jordan arguments ever. I, I just never want to get into them. Um, I think I think it's I think it's reductive. I think it's if this if we were like an actual radio show, I would call it hack radio, right? It's just it's just so it's just such an easy thing to go to and such an easy it's such an easy way to sort of um, rile up people and agitate people. Um, like if you see this argument on Twitter, it's it's NBA Twitter is very very sensitive to any of their you know any camp is sensitive to someone being denigrated but like the lebron um the lebron jordan um argument on twitter in nba twitter is especially strong it's just something that i just don't want to participate in because i don't care um i i don't care and if you want to make an argument for one being the greatest over the other i think you could make it and you'd be right um but the one thing where i will 100 percent weigh in on in terms of this isn't even a debate honestly because calling it a debate is kind of stupid because when it comes to when it comes to who is the goat of basketball shoes and who is the goat of shoe culture it is michael jordan it begins and ends with mike um there is there are no two ways about this shoe culture just does not exist sneakerhead culture does not exist without at least in its current form um, and as a multi-billion dollar industry without Michael Jordan. There is no possible way we get to the point where we are without Michael Jordan. It just that there's just no other way to put it. Um, maybe maybe you know for, for sure Nike would have found other athletes that um, you know that would have uh, that would have been very popular and had very popular shoes. but Michael Jordan and Nike were a marriage that, it, clearly it, it was right moment right time right person right opportunity like uh, just so many things met to create a truly iconic um force in both the sports world the fashion world pop culture um i mean the ripples of the ripples of michael jordan and nike and the the air jordans go into every facet of pop culture it, it's just it's undeniable exactly what michael jordan means to um what michael jordan means to uh sneakerhead culture i mean i i am a i i'm a fan of i i don't consider myself a sneakerhead necessarily but i you know i do own some jordans i do own some like as i mentioned before i had some converse um i have various athletic shoes like literally that are just for like you know uh, weightlifting and powerlifting and stuff and i i just don't think that basketball shoes would have a hold in as like as a casual wear the way that they do now without Michael Jordan. If, I just think it's impossible. And why this is so important is like when you go back to, when you go pre-Michael Jordan, pre-Nike, um, it was very, very unusual to have an entire, not an, shouldn't say unusual, it was unprecedented to have an entire endorsement campaign centered around one athlete. Now, like we talked about Steve Prefontaine and how he was like, you know, kind of the, the, maybe the first sort of um in terms of his sport obviously was the was the michael jordan of his sport but also maybe the michael jordan of of at that point in time what endorsement deals were right like he he really set the standard for what that kind of athlete endorsement deal could look like but it was still very very different from what 
Michael Jordan would kind of reset, you know, over a decade later. And what I mean by that is that even though, you know, Prefontaine is synonymous with Nike shoes, um, one, they weren't really his, the ones that he made most famous weren't really his shoes, right? And the way that Nike was pushing them, it wasn't really, we we didn't have Steve Prefontaine commercials. We didn't have pre, um, you know, we didn't have entire, like, we we just didn't have sort of the idea that the individual was the shoe yet. Um, it was that an individual wore these particular types of shoes, right? That's what pre was to um, Nike running shoes, was that this guy wears our shoes. We get to nineteen, we get to the mid nineteen eighties, we get to nineteen eighty five, and we get to Michael Jordan and Nike, and it's not well. Michael Jordan is wearing these Nikes. It is Michael Jordan is is this shoe. It literally is called the Air Jordan, not the Air Nike one sponsored by Michael Jordan or endorsed by Michael Jordan. It is the Air Jordan. Michael Jordan is these shoes. These shoes are Michael Jordan. Um, the first, uh, you know, the first commercial, like the takeoff or whatever, you get a good close up of the shoe. Um, and I believe this is the, I believe it's the, uh, the black, black and red was like the original version of the shoe. Uh, one of the original versions of the shoe. I think the more famous version of the of the Jordan ones is the one that has a little bit more white in the colorway, but it, but is still uh, mostly red, black, and and then white. Um, but anyway. It, it that that first commercial you you look at the shoe but it is a michael jordan commercial right and like it you know it ends with like the air you know the a voiceover talking about the the uh, air jordan ones um i guess they were just called the air jordans at that point in time because uh, there wasn't any other ones um but this this sort of the way that, that commercial and subsequent commercials with michael jordan and the air jordans went it just was unprecedented um, the focus was much more about when it came to ad campaigns, be they print or um, television, you know, television or you know whatever else. Uh, I guess at that point in time, there really wasn't anything else. But the focus was about sponsoring teams and building campaigns around teams, or it was about the shoe itself. Early Nike commercials are uh, there's an early early Nike commercial. I think their first spot, in fact, talks about like the technology of the shoe. Uh, does not single out any particular athlete, but it talks about the the technology of the running shoes. Um, even if there were individual athletes in commercials, um, it, again, just thinking of early Nike commercials where they where they did definitely had some sponsored athletes, some runners, and some other a couple football players, or whatever. They're not the ad isn't about them. They happen to be in the ad about Nike in general or or shoes in general, whatever. Um, they're just they weren't highlighting specific athletes. So to have a spot like the first 1985 uh, Jordan takeoff commercial, to have a spot like that that is you know 30 seconds of Jordan jumping, um, you know and dunking a basketball was unprecedented. There was just nothing. There was just nothing like it at all. And and it did match the sh- you know this sort of unconventional. Although now the way we think about it, it's just the very commonplace, but. At that point in time, the unconventional ad campaign did match a shoe that was, I don't want to say like radically different in terms of its design, but certainly was certainly breaking the mold of what was established. And, you know, like like I said, I, I think Adidas shoes look fantastic. Uh, I've always felt that. Same with, uh, as I mentioned, the Converse weapon, which would have been a pretty popular 
basketball shoe at that point in time. It's a good-looking shoe. But they just followed the general conventions of shoes at that point in time, of basketball shoes at that point in time. And there was nothing particularly special about them other than that they were clean, nice-looking shoes. Air Jordan comes around. It is definitely a disruptor in terms of design. Um, in fact, there's a great um, there's a great video if you YouTube it. Um, I can't, I can't remember the what you exactly have to look for, but if you look for, but here I'll, I'll just describe it real quick, and then you can you can figure it out. But there's a clip of a 1984 um, game between the Bulls and the Sixers. I think it's probably more famous because it's you know Jordan's playing um, um, Dr. J. Uh, you know I think they're like one of their few meetings. Um, it, obviously, because Dr. J wouldn't play much longer after that. But it's 1984, and the um, they're talking about um, they're talking about Michael Jordan, or whatever. And the commentators literally go and they give the ball to Michael Jordan, who's wearing what might possibly might possibly be the ugliest shoes I have ever seen. And the the color guy kind of they both kind of the, the announcer and the color guy both kind of laugh, have a little have a little chuckle about it. But then the the great maybe the greatest quip of all time, the uh, the color guy goes, well, for as much as they're paying him, I, you could pay me to wear those shoes as well. So it, it really the the Jordans the Air Jordans were the first ones were really um, disruptors in this particular sector um, of both both basketball shoe and both like style um, as as far as like style points go, the the Air Jordan ones were complete disruptors and it's just like it is. It's just an incredible. It is incredible that, um, it is incredible that like something that seems so commonplace now, um, was something that was very very strange. Again, you can you can watch the movie Air if you want to get a, a ton of background details on this kind of stuff. But it's just very interesting how, very interesting how um, how how Michael and Nike reset an entire industry and created. Created an entire an entire new type of not created an industry. It's not the way, right way to put it. They created a new type of um, of the, of athletes uh, and sponsorship, and they created a new type. And obviously, as we'll get into here in a second, they created a whole new culture by centering the shoe around the athlete and making them synonymous. We crew. This is when we really, really and truly create what you can think of as sneaker culture. All right, so now we have to talk about how hip-hop culture becoming mainstream helps uh, solidify how important sneakers are in um, in both, in a lot of worlds, but certainly in the fashion world, but also in the music world, in the sports world, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, hip-hop culture becoming mainstream really helps um, really helps solidify this. And right now, I'm, if you're not... Um, if you're not immediately thinking about uh, Run DMC's My Adidas, or maybe if you're, um, you know, you're out into old school hip hop and you're around my age, uh, maybe Nelly's Air Force Ones, um, California Loves, uh, praise of uh, Tupac praising Chuck Taylor's, Shadrach uh, Beastie Boys praising Adidas. Um, these things are just like you're, you're probably thinking of these things because these things are in, inseparable with hip hop hip hop culture, and it really is sort of a as I'll, as I'll lay out here kind of a perfect storm for how um, how sneakers became this crystal clear symbol of hip-hop culture. So going back to this time, back in the early 1980s, you have the growth of hip-hop really kind of, it really explodes because you have 
some songs from the late 70s or early 90s, like The Message from uh, Grandmaster Flash, The Furious Five, uh, Rapper's Delight, um, I don't know why this is escaped, Sugar Hill Gang. Um, these kind of songs reached beyond like the traditional hip-hop fan base and found some significant mainstream success. Um, so the people, they wanted more. This is a you know, a new sound um, or, you know, a remix sound of some stuff that they were kind of familiar with, but certainly something new in, in the, a different sort of sound in the, in the mainstream pop music culture. Um, so people wanted more. And, you know, thankfully at this point in time, we also had some technological advancements that made it easier to, easier to produce music, which meant that because there is this newfound demand for hip hop, there is now an ample supply of people who can rap, people who can produce um, it, it's just much easier for them to do it now than it was previously. Um, we also have sort of as a, um, kind of as, as a, on the social side, you know, we, we finally have, um, all of these, all these hip hop artists kind of provide a very, um, strong voice for the socioeconomic problems of inner city life, right? Like they, we didn't really have, um, mainstream pop culture was not really clued into the things that were going on in uh, in the in the inner city and and in the experience of living in the inner city you know like when you really when you really think about pop music and most music prior to that it just it really lacked the edge of like this sort of um these sort of um i don't i don't want to call it anger but like just sort of the the you know the way that uh, hip-hop music a lot of it like implores you to kind of pay attention to the things that are going on uh socially and not that not that we didn't have social songs before obviously we had plenty of songs uh you know rock songs from like the 60s and 70s that were uh railing uh, against uh railing against um you know railing against the government railing against war things like that not saying that those things didn't exist but in terms of sort of this particular experience there was no previous voice for it before and if you're someone who is living this particular, um, you know, living this particular experience, uh, you, you, you're interested in the people who are talking about it or, you know, singing about it, rapping about it. Um, and certainly if you're from outside of this experience, you were interested in, in it as well because it was just a new voice telling you about something that you didn't really know about pro uh, previously. And additionally, we also have uh, this, this hip-hop comes along with the growth of MTV, right? Um, MTV really helps showcase hip hop to a significantly wider audience, and because hip hop is a, or excuse me, because the MTV is a very visual medium, obviously, um, this very new visual medium, um, along with the just with the sounds that are being more widely distributed, uh, we are now getting the hip hop style is coming along with it. People are seeing how um, you know how Run DMC, how uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five are dressing, basically. And along with it, of course, comes their sneakers. I'm going to jump around a little bit here because this is this this singular portion of this uh, of this episode could in and of itself be like an hour long. So I'm just going to skip around a little bit and kind of highlight one of the more important people in terms of uh, solidifying um, sneakers as, uh, you know, as this sort of totem and symbol of, of hip hop culture. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to zoom a little bit ahead into the late 80s, into the early 90s, and talk about Bobito Garcia. 
aka DJ Cucumber Slice. I just I had to say that. I wanted to say that so badly. Um, but Babito Garcia was a was a DJ in New York. I'm still, I mean, he's still alive, but he's still doing, he's still DJing and uh, MCing and doing all kinds of stuff uh, in the New York hip hop scene. Uh, so it's not like he's passed. He's like in his mid late fifties now. But Babito Garcia at this point in time was hosting a radio show in New York uh, from the early early nineties to the mid nineties. It was called the Stretch Armstrong and Babito Show, and this was sort of your go to for. This is your go-to uh, for discovering new hip hop artists. Think about like the think about the hip hop artists that emerge uh, from New York in the 1990s: DMX, Nas, um, you know, Fat Joe, Big Pun. All of those, um, you know, these all of those names would would have would have had stuff debut um, early mixtapes and exclusives and stuff would have debuted on the Armstrong and Babido show at this point in time. And in addition to just you know, playing their songs. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these hip hop artists came on to be interviewed. And one of the key elements of whether they were being interviewed or they were just talking about, uh, you know, the artists and, you know, their mixtape or whatever they were getting. Uh, one of the key elements was the fashion, was the style, and in particular, of particular interest to Bobito Garcia was the footwear. Um, you know, the sneakers. Like, what are you wearing? What are you wearing on your feet? And Bobito Garcia was particularly interested in this because of his background as a as a uh, as a street baller and someone who was deeply involved in that world, he he himself was a street baller, but also um, would host and like MC events and stuff. Like, you think about like the uh, think about like um, maybe now if you're familiar with like the Rucker Park League, the Rucker League, and how uh, you know it's like those those games are like a party, right? Like you, there's usually a DJ and some music happening while the games are being played. Uh, there's celebrities show up. It was that kind of deal in the 1980s and 90s, and Garcia's sort of Garcia's background in that, and, you know, as as himself a streetballer, um, you know, made made it so that he was very intrigued by, um, you know, very intrigued by sneakers in general, but also how sneakers had migrated from simply being athletic wear to being a, a being you know being a very key piece of street style uh, in New York City at this point in time, you know, through the 80s and uh, uh, and into the 90s, in fact, Bobito Garcia writes a book called Where'd You Get Those? Uh, New York's New York City's Sneaker Culture, 1960 to 1987. Um, and it uh, obviously it chronicles the sneaker culture in New York City where um, you probably, again, it's not that it exclusively starts here, but maybe that's like the, this is the most important um, this is the most important cultural center for sneaker culture at this point in time uh, or just period. But um but it, it covers that that really critical time period, um, that that almost thirty year time period where shoes shoes make the the sneakers make the jump from, again just being athletic wear to being more of a statement. Um, so you know, Bobito Garcia, a very key figure in this particular in this particular movement and in, in this particular time period, maybe one of the most critical people, if not if not the most critical person, um, in pushing in pushing uh, shoes as street style. So again, it's just this very, it's this very perfect storm um, in New York City at this point in time. You have street style, hip hop, basketball, just all colliding at the same time to cement sneakers as the item that will represent one's uh, personal status, your fashion sense, and even even your tasted music or which athletes you align yourself with. Um, you know, like the shoes become that important and shoes say your shoes say that much about you. 
Um, and it really is this point in time where all those factors come together to make that that kind of statement. It is not it is not too unlike the Romans and their fancy boots, right? The Romans the Romans wore particular shoes, the particular styles on them, as a means just to tell people that like, hey, I'm a rich, you know, I'm a, a rich, uh, you know, some kind of aristocrat landowner or whatever, or you know, I'm I'm some kind of important soldier. In the same way that maybe someone wearing um, someone wearing Adidas shoes was aligning themselves with uh, with lining themselves with Run DMC and um, you know whoever else would have been rocking Adidas at that point in time in, in the NBA. In the same way that someone was rocking Jordans to align themselves with uh, you know with Michael Jordan and, and Nike in the Nike brand, right? So it is it is this point in time in in the world and uh, in pop culture where all those things come together in a really really interesting sort of way. All right, so let's officially jump ahead to the 1990s. And really, I'm calling this 1990s to now because I think, uh, as I'll get into a little bit more detail here, the 1990s is when we kind of, we take the building blocks, the foundational blocks from the 1980s in terms of culture and business, and we just expand upon them. I, I don't necessarily think of this as being the, um, any anything really groundbreaking happens here. We just see more of what we had previously. So the 1990s starts off, um, oh, I'll get into the shoes, excuse me, real quickly. So here are the top shoes from the 1990s and some from more recent times. Um, so we have the Nike Air Max 90s. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like these are, I, I know I put this down, but I don't remember exactly what these ones are. I feel like they're more of a casual sneaker uh, in general. We got the Reebok Shack Attack. Everyone knows these ones. They're like the spiral kind of hypnotizing looking Shack shoes uh, that were super popular when I was a kid. Um Air Jordans of various, of all varieties, um, would be on this list. Probably multiples at this point in time are up on this list. Uh, but, uh, you know, so Nike, Nike begins, you know, begins its dominance, starts its dominant run, run in the 1980s and just absolutely continues it through the 1990s. Um, popping back up on the list in the 1990s, Chuck Taylor's come back as a popular shoe, as popular shoe type um, and really kind of stick even through even through current times, uh, Chuck Taylors are, are that popular. So I mean, you're talking about for Chuck Taylors, a essentially a hundred year run of being one of the most popular shoes in America, which is pretty astounding. Uh, we also have uh, I, I wanted to highlight these because I'll talk about this in a little bit here, but we have also one of the more popular shoes of very recent times, the Adidas Yeezy Boost, um, Kanye's uh, one of Kanye's signature shoes that kind of I don't know. If, if you like him, you like him, I guess. Not really into his sense of style, but that's neither here nor there. But all of these kind of represent a lot of the um, a lot of the fads and things that happened in the 1990s. So one of the big things that one of the probably the most major thing that happens in the 1990s with tennis shoes, with sneaker, with all shoes, tennis shoes, basketball shoes, um, even even the more specialized like athletic shoes, cleats, and things like that. Um, we have air cushioning now. We're gonna put big ass, big ass gel pockets of air and whatever else into into all of those shoes, and we're gonna make them visible. Um, it was something not exactly brand new, but it is sort of the the first widespread use of of air cushioning in shoes. And who can forget? Who can forget about Reebok's pumps, the the Omni pumps? Um, simply one of the most intriguing. I'll have a little bit more to say about these shoes uh, here in a bit, but simply one of the most intriguing uh, models of shoes ever made, truly ever made. Um, but so we have, so air is like a big thing. And you, and you hear like, 
we already had like Air Jordans, but like the idea wasn't necessarily that there was air in the shoes, right? Like, but now when we talk about Nike Air Max, we literally mean that there's air in the shoes now. Um, the shoes also physically get bigger. Um, obviously the sizing on shoes has changed slightly over the, over the years. Um, you know, like your size, like 12 or whatever, or 10, whatever you wear might've been bigger or smaller depending on the decade, but not really by a lot. It wouldn't have been a radical, um, difference, but literally the outside and the design of the shoe becomes bigger and chunkier in the 1990s. If you remember 1990s basketball shoes, and I do because I own several pairs of them, they were freaking gigantic. Um, and as a person with a, I don't know, larger than average foot, uh, even even at this point in time when I would have been in my teen years, um, it, like it, it felt like we were wearing uh, just like battleships on our feet when we played basketball and stuff. Like, they were so damn big. But um, but with those big shoes, kind of came you got a big canvas. So you could do some things, you could make like, the, the colorways are expanded essentially, so you could do some more designs on, on those shoes, thinking of like the Shaq, um, the Reebok Shaq Attack with its like spiral design. On something like, um, you know, an Adidas Gazelle, which is a very small, more uh, more simplistic, uh, casual sneaker, there's no way you would have the space to be that intricate with that spiral design on that shoe necessarily. Um you also have at this point in time the influence of the influence of other sports and hobbies in the design of of, of sneakers. Um, you have a lot of you know I, I know I mentioned previously like it's the seventies where we have some other sneakers being made by like Vans and stuff are kind of popping in, but it's like at this point in time you have Nike making their own particular um, you know their own particular version of what. Um, of what becomes a, a skate shoe or a casual shoe you have uh, it's the same thing with like a you know adidas had already kind of been in the skate game at this point for a little bit but like more companies are sort of making those kind of shoes and you know and really i think where it's, this stands out more is on the actual sport side of it where you have things like you know for a long time baseball cleats were just baseball cleats but now you have michael jordan air jordan baseball cleats um, you have football cleats that look like they have the same design as basketball shoes, right? The 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 cleat, or I don't exactly know what you call them. The, the whatever the cleat base is, is you know it's still a cleat base, but now the shoe itself is a basketball shoe or is a skate shoe. And I feel I feel very confident that right now, if you were to look them up, I feel like Vans makes baseball cleats as well. Um, and and you know some of that's by like athletes, you know. They might make like an individual one for an athlete. It might not be necessarily super widely available, but I you do have you do have other sports intermingling and affecting the design of shoes as well. And I think probably the biggest thing that comes out of this, um, starting in the '90s and then just exploding from then on out, are the celebrity collaborations with shoe brands. And in particular, just to kind of wind this back to the last segment, in particular, a lot of hip hop artists. Be it Kanye, be it um, Jay Z with his uh, Carters, um, there's a ton of there's a ton of rappers that have their own signature shoe. Uh, be it a design of their kind of own making or something that they just kind of adopted um, as their own. Um, but certainly we go from we go from simply someone like Run DMC kind of boasting about how they wear Adidas to then Kanye and Jay Z literally designing and, and you know. And coming up with the uh, the ad campaigns, you know, really controlling 
um, everything from design to distribution and advertisement of the shoe, um, which obviously really changes. And then you have some things more recently, like um, I think more recently it takes a, a more interesting turn when you think of like someone like Little Nas X. Sorry about that. Had to had to backtrack a little bit here. Had a little technical difficulty, and by that I mean a dog was barking. Um, but uh, yeah, so just to sorry again, just to backtrack a little bit. Um, you know, you have like this more recently that just thinking like like this little Nas X collaboration, uh, wherein you have a, and it his was for a very particular reason and it riled up all the right people to get him uh, a few more extra eyeballs on his um, like Satan shoes or whatever the hell they were called. But like the you know now it's just now it goes from like mass production of you know like a um, you know a Yeezy or a you know a, a Carter shoe or whatever. Um, now we're going for these like very limited edition shoes. And I think that's sort of how you would define a lot of the celebrity shoe collaborations now, um, you know, beyond the, beyond the athlete ones. Cause those are a little bit different. Obviously, you know, if you, if you pick up a pair of Durant's or Harden or LeBron's, whatever, those are, you know, those are mass produced shoes and, and there are some special editions or whatever else. But when you think about the celebrity collaborations, I think they, they go from, it has changed in that now we are talking about significantly more limited uh limited runs of these shoes so just kind of an interesting way that that sort of has evolved um certainly we're going to have another we're going to have another celebrity big enough to have like a more mass-produced shoe but i do think it's it's kind of has changed just a little bit in in the way that um that celebrity sneakers are are produced and the way that business model works now so the 90s very of uh, the 90s to now very interesting sort of evolution of where the shoes go and obviously as we get to uh, you know just thinking about thinking about like in the last like five years or so in terms of like what sneakers look like and how they function i think we are you know we are we're culture we're a pop culture and, and our pop culture american pop culture is very kind of obsessed with nostalgia right so it's not surprising to me that some of the big shoes now are um i mean jordans are a little bit different but like the retro jordan ones and jordan twos have really come back into popularity. Uh, the Adidas, um, I don't think they make. I don't think they make top tens anymore. But they make a style that is. I have a. I have a. I have the Adidas hoops like three point or whatever. That is a very similar style to the Adidas top tens and very similar style to the Adidas basketball shoes that would have been worn in the seventies and eighties. Um, so I do think it's kind of interesting how that nostalgia has kind of bent back and taken us back to a time, and it, it's because you know people of approximately my age and a little bit older are the ones who are kind of steering, um, who are at the controls of pop culture, not necessarily the people influencing it, but like the people who are in, in the, the positions that would need to be make, that would need to make decisions in terms of running certain shoes, green lighting, certain music and shows and stuff like that. All those people are about my age. So it's not shocking or surprising that the things from our youth are the things that are, kind of um are kind of back in style now or popular now and that obviously goes along with fashion and stuff right stuff from the 80s and the early 90s is very much uh in demand right now all right so this episode ended up being quite a bit um more stuff than i thought um so there's there's definitely things that we just that I, I just had to skip over for the for the sake of brevity and not um straining all of my free time um and my personal life uh you know distilling it down into just recording podcast episodes but so there's a lot of stuff that we definitely that you know we just had you know we just have to skip over for for lack of a better term 
Um, certainly there are aspects to sneaker culture that we're leaving out, the development of sneakers that we're leaving out, um, you know, the innovations and things. But um, it's there's a lot there, there's, and there's a lot of, like, resources that you can go. If you really are intrigued about this, you can go look it up. There are just volumes and volumes of books written about this, um, not just Bob, not just by Bobito Garcia, whose book I mentioned previously, but scholarly articles, all kinds of stuff that you can go into if you're really that fascinated by sneaker culture and sort of the, the way sneakers, especially in the last you know 45 years or so, really developed. Uh, there's plenty there for you. But I did want to end this episode. We had to do it. We do a lot of talk. We do a lot, do a lot of lists. Um, we like to do some lists from time to time, and I think this is a perfect episode for for a list. Um, so we got to end with my top five personal sneakers. Um, and uh, as I'm, some of these I've, I've mentioned already at this point in time, some I have not. Um, but I, let me actually look at the list. I think only only one I have not. Um, so we'll get into it here. We'll start with number five here. And I'm talking about the number five shoe. I'm talking about Sean Kemp's signature shoe uh, back when Sean Kemp was an absolute dominant force for the Sonics especially. Uh, he did play for my Cavs for, for a brief time, and he had a couple of good seasons there before uh, really, really dropping off. But um, Sean Kemp's signature shoe, the Reebok Kamikaze. Uh, this bad boy, one of my favorites, and obviously it's on this list. Um, I own these. They're pretty comfy. Uh, again, this is a point in time where shoes were just gigantic, so it was kind of wearing like gunboats in your feet. But, um, oh, thank you, ESPN. Forgot to silence that. Um, but... These were the ones that had a sort of a kind of like a jagged kind of uh, angular pattern to them. Um, I'll put up pictures for this one, obviously. But uh, you'll if you if you go Google Reebok Kamikaze, you'll know exactly what shoe I'm talking about. Uh, my number four sneaker uh, is one that I currently own that I just mentioned uh, a few minutes ago called the Adidas Hoops 3.0 Retro. It is a retro style shoe, retro style basketball shoe. Um, very, very simple with the minor, minor black with the white three stripe and like the white, um, sole, um, very simple design, elegant, clean, neat design. Uh, as I said, I think, I think the one thing that Adidas will always have on Nike is just sort of the, even though they both have very simple logos, something about the three stripe logo on Adidas stuff just looks cleaner. It has always looked cleaner to me. Um, it just, there's something about it that just strikes a very, um, a very, just a great look. I mean, there's a reason why the three stripes are iconic. Um, so my Adidas Hoops 3.0 Retro, my number four sneaker. My number three sneaker, got to go with them. This is a pair that I did not own, actually. Um, the Reebok Pump Omni Light. Um, I owned a, I owned like a, I owned a pair of Reebok pumps, but it wasn't this particular brand. This wasn't this particular model. This is like the, the, oh, these are the OGs basically. And these ones become super famous because of, you'll remember these ones because of D Gordon, um, or excuse me, D Gordon, um, D Brown, D Brown, not D Gordon. Jeez. Um, D Gordon played baseball, uh, D Brown Celtics guard. Uh, these shoes became famous, uh, because of his, uh, him winning the dunk contest, and I want to say like 1990 or maybe 91, um, he very famously right before his right before his dunks would stop and pump up his shoes, you know, get some air in the in the shoes, and they even kind of made mention of it uh, during the the broadcast of the dunk contest. Um, you know, this is the one where D Brown uh, dunks. He covers his eyes as he dunks. He does the blind dunk. 
uh, has some really nice dunks, especially for a guy who's not, you know, not gigantic uh, necessarily. They're basketball players. They're all tall, but not a gigantic guy. Um, won the dunk contest with that signature blind dunk and and made waves uh, pumping his shoes up before each dunk. Very great. Uh, great shoe, too. Love the shoe design on these. Um, but the Reebok Pump Omnilite, I, Omnilite's iconic. Uh, my number three sneaker. My number two sneaker, simply because I love this color and I love the style. I gotta find it. I gotta find it. Well, like, not of these particular, but the LeBron Eights, the South Beach Edition, with that sort of. Um, I have no way, no way. I don't know how to describe it other than like call it the cool Miami blue, with some pink and with some black. You know the colors you think about when you think of Miami as a city, right? Um, so those LeBron Eights are absolutely. A gorgeous modern shoe, and simply uh, one of the best. One of the best LeBron eights in general are great LeBrons, but uh, these South Beach Edition shoes are absolutely fantastic. So LeBron eight South Beach Edition, my number two sneakers, and to round it out, gotta pay, gotta give it up to the Air Jordan One retros. Um, I, I rock a pair of black and yellow ones. They're not the original black and uh, black and red. Rock a pair of black and yellow ones. Um, they're iconic, fantastic. They're comfortable. They look good with just about anything. I mean, truly anything you can put on. You could put on a goddamn suit and your Air Jordan 1 retros look great. So my number one sneaker of all time, the Air Jordan 1 retros uh, specifically. I, I wear the mid-tops. Um, you can get them. You can get uh, Air Jordan in, in lows or very high, high tops, if, if you, I guess if you're out, actually out in the court playing in these things. But uh, the number one, Air Jordan 1 retros. All right, so that does it for this episode and for your first history lesson. Uh, we are done with our history lesson on sneakers. Again, obviously, this is more... I tried to highlight some things that I was more interested in and highlight some things that I thought that uh, you might be interested in out there and knowing about both the development of, of sneakers um, or in shoes in general, for that matter, and but also like the, the culture that I think I, I found the most interesting. Um, so, yeah, this is a little bit more broad strokes, but again, like you could do... I, someone could do, this isn't my place. I'm sure there's already a podcast out there. You could do a 10 part series just on shoes from the 1970s onwards, you know, a solid, a solid hour and a half, 90 minutes, 10 parts. You could easily get that out of just like the seventies, eighties, nineties, um, uh, shoe culture and sneaker development. Even if you weren't even looking at the culture part, just the development part, uh, would be pretty, would be pretty interesting. So, Again, this is broad strokes, but hopefully got you interested in in some of the ideas here. You, know, you might want to go check out some things, or maybe you look at shoes in a different light, or you look at basketball shoes in a different light. Um, I know it's it re- like I said, I've, I've never I never really particularly thought of myself as a sneakerhead, but I've always um, I'm one of those people who always considers quite a bit when I do buy shoes. Um, I don't just like I don't just buy them because they quote unquote look good. Like, I, how do they feel? What are they for? What's the purpose of them? Like, what is you know, do they have, do they have like a, you know, if, if, if it's something for like, um, you know, like I said, like I power lift and weight lift, um, you know, is, is the shoe functional for that in addition to looking good? Um, you know, is, are these basketball shoes really solely, you know, there's some basketball shoes you can buy. I suppose you could wear them for like, you know, casual, you know, as casual sneakers, but they really like, there's some basketball shoes that look so much like basketball shoes. They just, they don't like wear well casually. So I've always been that kind of person interested in in how like in sort of the you know just beyond like do they look good like what are the other things that like to consider when buying shoes I don't know maybe maybe that has helped you become one of those people now I don't know or maybe you are just interested in going full throat into the sneakerhead culture I don't know 
but I've had fun doing this one. Uh, so this is one that uh, definitely is going to go high in the uh, high in the uh, on the old archive ranking for my, for episodes that uh, that we've done on the podcast. Uh, and for I think for sure we're going to do I think for sure we're going to do more of these types of episodes where we kind of cover the as I said I didn't really want to get into the history of something real dour and kind of like potentially depressing because I just did a whole bunch of war movies. I would definitely like to get it more into the background of stuff like this, you know, talking about sneakers, talking about whatever, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. I like this kind of stuff quite a bit. So that's it. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. And we will catch you on the flip side.